Hi listeners, taking a second here for two important notes. First off, this is episode 50. Episode 50. I never thought when I started this podcast that I'd still be going or even that we'd be picking up speed, but here we are and it's all thanks to you. With episode 50, the podcast is likely to cross 2,000 total downloads in the next week, which is just insane to me. So really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thanks to those of you who support on Patreon at patreon.com slash whiskey and my wedding ring. Thanks to those of you who listen every week and who have introduced friends and family to the podcast. And thanks to those to you who are part of the Whiskey Ringers Facebook group. I truly, truly could not have gotten here without you. Keep doing what you're doing. Write me or connect on social media if you have ideas or suggestions for topics and people you want me to bring on. Always happy to uh, entertain those and get in contact with people. And again, just thank you. Uh, Second note, a little more serious. This episode features Limestone Branch Distillery and focuses heavily on the Yellowstone bourbon brand. Besides the brand itself, uh, you might have seen recently in the last few months that Yellowstone National Park, after which the brand is named, has recently suffered some devastating floods that, among other things, crumpled an entire highway and basically demolished an entire entrance to the park. I was lucky enough to visit Yellowstone back in 2008, and I really can't emphasize enough how important the park is. It's a symbol of our country, it's a symbol of the natural wonders that this country has, and it's also a symbol of what can happen when nature proves stronger than man. It's truly a national treasure. And as such, I'm asking you, as a listener, as a supporter, to consider making a donation to the National Parks Conservancy Association, which is helping to rebuild the park's infrastructure and reopen the destroyed entrance. Uh, There's no need to reference me or the podcast. I'm not asking for any kind of credit or anything like that. This is completely up to you. Just donate what you can to help Yellowstone recover. And as Stephen says in the podcast, may we meet at Yellowstone over a pour of bourbon when the park has fully recovered. There is a link to donate in the show notes, or you can go to npca.org. That's the National Parks Conservancy Association, npca.org, to donate. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for supporting Yellowstone. And please enjoy this monumental and milestone episode. Cheers to the next 50 to come. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are going back to Kentucky. I think last time we were over in Scotland and a little bit of Kansas, but we're going back to Kentucky this time. Uh, we're visiting Limestone Branch Distillery and to talk all about it. Welcome on to the podcast, Mr. Stephen Fonte. Hello, folks. Welcome, Welcome Stephen. So uh, i like to start where everybody starts, which is uh, how did you get to where you are today in spirits and limestone? Uh, it's been a you know, a journey, obviously, uh, as it always is, but, uh, I started out in the coffee business and, uh, I was, uh, with John Connie coffee company where I worked to become a tea sommelier for them over a number of years and, uh, did and worked with Mark Nethery and importing all the teas for the company and, uh, developed a tea program forum called Conti Ice Tea. And took that national. And then uh, while I was doing that, one of my largest clients with the company was Brown Foreman Corporation. And if you know anything about Brown Foreman, you know that's old Forrester 
uh, it was early times and uh, they had Jack Daniels and I called on their corporate headquarters. So the whole time that I was in the coffee business, I saw how beautiful uh, the bourbon industry was through their international campus. Uh, they had 36 coffee brewers on the property and I got to visit everybody's office. So I, I got to see how the bourbon industry lived and was uh, duly impressed, but uh, they required people to have a master's degree before they could come work for Brown Foreman. So it was a dream, but it wasn't uh, what I thought could be a re reality. I was also working with Maker's Mark uh, Coffee. Uh, they did their coffee and their uh, entrance as you came into Maker's Mark. Uh, they served John Conti Maker's Mark Coffee. So I got to know a little bit about Bill Samuels. My life in Kentucky has led me to know personally a lot of these master distillers over the years, one of which happened to be Stephen Beam. And Stephen Beam and I have known each other since he was since I was seven. Uh, he was about 17 at the time. And uh, he was a good friend of my brother Leo's. When he told me that he was going to open a distillery, I said, I'm in. And, uh, and then he said, well, not quite yet, because we're just opening a little craft distillery, and it's only going to be my brother and I uh, for a while. And two years in, I came back to him uh, after pestering him for two years to get a job uh, <laughs> and told him I was unemployed from Roll Cup International. I'd been downsized, and that if I was going to eat another meal, it was going to be him because I wasn't calling anybody else for a job. <laughs> so I put the Catholic guilt to him. And here I am. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's the first TSMO. Yeah. It's the first time we've even heard that statement. And uh, my, even before I was in whiskey, my wife and I get introduced to loose leaf tea. And uh, we have a full tea wall in our apartment. Extraordinary. Of, yeah. It's, it's mostly um, Harney and Sons because that's, you know, they're based up here in New York. Uh, a couple things elsewhere too, but it's mainly our Harney wall, but we're both tea drinkers. I'm more coffee drinker. She doesn't like coffee, but <laughs> I'm always interested in new flavors. And it's the first time I've heard someone be a tea sommelier. So pretty cool mean, stuff. Yeah. It's, it's I different. I got a chance to go to New York and, uh, and Mr. Connie had me uh, work with the Russian tea room as mm -hmm. part of my training to become his tea sommelier. And, uh, so I got a chance to visit a few of the big hotels there and see how tea service was done. But the gold standard, of course, is the Russian tea room. Of course. Of course. So uh, it's also an interesting perspective of being childhood friends with, with Stephen Beam. I mean, do you, looking back, do you get the sense now, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, but do you get the sense now that even at that age, uh, he was kind of destined to go into the distilling business just by nature of who he was growing up around. You know, I, uh, I didn't at that time, uh, have any inclination of, of who he was or where he was going in his life. Um, we disconnected from each other for a number of years cause he went to Purdue university. He got his graduate degree masters in landscape architecture and he disappeared for a while. And it wasn't until, uh, I was calling on his restaurant that, uh, that I found him again. And at that point, uh, he didn't really want to 
talk coffee with me since he owned a pizza restaurant and pizza and coffee were not going to be something that he was going to do a lot of. Uh, he'd never been very highly successful in getting coffee to a client that was fresh, but, uh, I wasn't visiting for that. I was visiting for tea and, uh, he didn't realize that till after our meeting and he put my tea program in and I think we put a cure again so that he could have that single cup experience for the one grandma that was there at the table wanting a, a cup of coffee <laughs> and she'd get it fresh and it was always going to be consistent. So that's kind of the direction I did. And then before you know it, uh, I had the tea business of the other beer nose locations that he, you know, had relatives in from his brother to his nephews. All of them had a beer nose pizza. And, uh, and I picked up a lot of business with Steve and I as a partner. When it came time for him to go to market, he said, there's only one name that I know to his brother that I think would be extraordinary in it. And that's Stephen Fonte. And we should bring him on board to take us to market. Then. And then at uh, this goes into, of course, where you are now with Limestone Branch. How you mentioned already that down the road you had been uh, laid off. You said this, you know, my next job is going to be it's going to be with you. So at this point in the journey, Stephen had already started Limestone Branch. A couple of years into it, actually, uh, I yeah. sent a photographer down from Churchill Downs, who's my closest friend, Ali Philly, to videotape and to take photographs of the opening of the distillery and to give Stephen Bean all those pictures afterward and to tell him when he gave those pictures over to him that Stephen Fonte wants a job. And that happened. He thought he was press. He thought he was there to be press. I mean, the governor was there, I believe. They had uh, city officials there. They had a lot of photographers there, one of which was my ringer to get a job at Limestone Branch Distillery. Since then, uh, Ali Philly has done a lot of photography for Limestone Branch Distillery, and a lot of the photographs you see of our Yellowstone bourbon is through him. That's awesome. It's a, uh, I mean, you guys are no small potatoes anymore. You weren't before the, uh, before the merger with MGP and now of course you're even larger, but uh, it's still, it, it, it reminds me of a still family operation, a family and friends operation. That's certainly the feeling. It truly hasn't changed at all in the merger. It, uh, you know, Stephen Beam is still at the helm of the ship and uh, there's uh, a little bit more cash there for him to work with. He's uh, still doing things on his daily job like I do. Uh, nothing's really changed other than uh, we've got uh, a lot more resources to uh, to make even better whiskey now. Fair, fair. And I got to uh, visit the distillery while I was down there, about, wow, almost a month ago now. Um, and it was just a, it was a lovely place to visit. You know, it's what I think of as small in a good way off the side of the road beautiful building you walk into you can walk through the uh, shipping container with the barrels in there um, and it was really just a beautiful little property and I, you got a very home feel vibe like there was nothing industrial about it 
That made sense. I'm very prideful in the employees and the folks that are at Artist Story. Uh, Casey Shirley, the front of the house manager, has taken a torch from my hand and she's ran with it. And uh, my uh, my one and only goal for that story was to be the most hospitable distillery anywhere on any of the bourbon trail. And I think we have accomplished that. And when you walk into Limestone Branch Distillery, you're greeted at the door. You get a cocktail put in your hand. You get an opportunity to visit a quaint little gift shop that has got some of the nice high-end merchandise that you would expect. And uh, I owe and attribute a lot of that to Casey making uh, incredible inroads in, in, in the front of the house portion of it and keeping employees, keeping employees happy. And as, uh, as it all comes together, it's just like a, a beautiful orchestra. You know, you get all of the instruments playing on the same tune and, and you get something that's extraordinary. And that's what limestone branch is to me. And we can't forget uh, what, might be the most important member of staff you have there so much so that they have their own barrel to sit in, which is uh, the distillery cat. Oh yeah. That barrel was fun. It came through my brother, Greg. He said, Steven, you're not going to believe this. What is it brother? He said, there's a Yellowstone barrel sitting out in the trash next door. I said, what? He said, yeah, it looks like it's an old display from a, a store or something. He said, do you want it? I said, yeah, I want it. <laughs> It'd been sitting there on top of a microwave stand is what it was being used as a microwave stand. And that's what Stephen Beam chuckles about. Whenever you do a display at a store, it ends up someplace in a house. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Eventually it ends up in someplace in the house. Come to find out that her husband had worked for Yellowstone at some point in time. And, uh, and that was a barrel that he'd taken as a display, uh, and it was in perfect condition. Now it's the cat house at Limestone Branch Distillery for Corky, our cat. <laughs> and I have to admit, Corky was uh, absent when I was there. <laughs> okay. but He's usually either sleeping in the barrel or he's out working, the uh, patrolling the, the distillery property. It was the middle of the day, so he was probably happy out there distilling. Uh, that's um, but that would be funny if he was distilling too, but patrolling the properties. Um, I just kind of I was in the the uh, gift shop with my friend Eric. We're looking through the merchandise, and I turned back because, of course, when you walk in, trying to paint a picture for people who hadn't haven't been there, you walk in to the front door, the uh, bar where you can get cocktail or pour is to the left. You walk in straight. And you go straight into the gift shop and there's a wall there with uh, memorabilia and things from the Yellowstone traditions. And then just behind that wall or against that wall on the other side is where that barrel for Corky is. And so I didn't see it at first. I was looking through, I went over to the bottles. Then I look back and I'm like, there's a cat bed in there. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the most luxurious cat bed you can ever have, uh, but it was, it was just, it was adorable and funny. And again, made it feel like the, you know, the cat was on staff as it were. And it was, he truly was is. We'd be lost yeah. without him. You yeah. know, any, little... any distillery has a lot of grain around the property. And whenever you get a lot of grain around the property, you need to have uh, uh, Corky, 
you need to have something that uh, is going to take care of that issue if there is an issue. So yeah, he does a great job at that, and uh, he's he's a pretty cool cat. He sits a little higher in the barrel so that when we have visiting dogs, he's got a little bit higher perch, and mm-hmm. we get a lot of people that bring their dog. And uh, on leash, we, you know, we advertise, bring them, you know, because as long as they're on leash, we're good with it. And, uh, and then I've got my dog, Louie, who uh, hangs out on the property. Louie he gets too close to Corky. Corky just smacks him in the nose. And, uh, and they <laughs> have an agreement right. together. <laughs> Sounds about right. Oh, man. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, we have to, you know, let's dive right into to Yellowstone. And, and well, awesome. sorry, let's go backwards. So to, to Limestone Branch Distillery. So the, if you would tell us the, the founding story of Limestone Branch. Well, it's a, it's a really cool story that goes to the depths of uh, Jacob Beam. And it goes to the depths of J.W. Dant. Now, when you start looking into the history of the distillery, you got to understand that though the boys that built our distillery are beams their whole life. The mother was a Dant the whole time. So I like to say the boys weren't born. They were distilled. <laughs> and in that, like you're going to find uh, that the sixth generation of the family had been in the business. Guy Beam, their grandfather, and... Uh, and Jimmy Beam, their father, worked for Seagram's. And now they're the seventh generation in the business. And uh, they wouldn't have had a seventh generation in the business, in the family, had it not been for Stephen Beam and Paul to have stepped up and said, whoa, wait a minute. There's no longer uh, a distillery with Beams in it, uh, owning it. And uh, so we want to start our own distillery. And that's how it all came about was from a passion of ownership that uh, they did not uh, want the seventh generation to go without a beam on the still, et cetera. So that uh, was kind of how it began. And uh, when craft distillery licenses opened up, well, Steve was one of the first to apply. And I think he'll go down in history as being one of the first craft distillers to take a distillery to the status that he has. That's fair. And, of course, there's going to be the, the uh, not comparison, but the link. Of course, Jim Beam as a company, they've got uh, Fred and Freddie. Oh, uh, they're doing a great job. And, and I'm so excited about their future. Uh, Freddie, uh, Fred's son, Freddie. Oh, my gosh. He's the real deal. A gentleman, a wonderful person. Every time I've had an encounter with him, uh, he's just he's extraordinary. He's a great guy. And he's a great distiller. He's a Booker Jr., in my opinion. He's got the, uh, the ability to do everything in that distillery that needs to be done to make it a successful place for decades to come. That's a hell of a compliment to call him a Booker Jr. I think uh, that's Fred right there behind me with a signature. Oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I, I kind of like those bean boys. I've not met one yet that I didn't like. <laughs> I can say the same. I haven't met Fred. I met Freddie. I uh, had the chance to do that over over Zoom, but yeah, so it doesn't qu- count quite as much. But uh, now all all the great guys, uh, and that leads into a, a you know a question, a topic that I mentioned before we started, which is that you can't throw, like I said, you can't throw a rock in Kentucky, especially in that area, without hitting a beam or a no. That's a uh, true story. I uh, yeah. I know more beams than I do nose. 
but uh, mm-hmm. that's just by happenstance. I uh, hadn't spent as much sure. time on that staff. I do know Bernie Lubbers, and uh, Bernie was on their staff for a number of years, and he tells me stories. So uh, mm-hmm. as another global brand ambassador, Bernie over at Heaven Hill, had worked mm-hmm. for Jim Bean prior to uh, his his gig here at, uh, at Heaven Hill currently. Yeah, and he's no Bernie. Good yeah, friend he's of the podcast. Yeah. Lots of lots of cool stories. I love hanging out with Bernie and I love hanging out with Fred and all of them. And as it turns out, when uh, when I had Bernie on, this was earlier this year, maybe January, February time. Uh, as you know, in your role, like after a certain point, you go on a lot of podcasts and shows and two in-person tastings and things, and you get asked the same questions. And I try to at least find one or two new questions to ask, new topics to broach. Uh, and I think I've said it on the podcast before, certainly on the um, the Patreon-only version, if not the main podcast, that that was the hardest interview to prep for, <laughs> was to find a new question to ask him. And for me, it ended up being a Beam-related one, which was the start of the Parker's Heritage Collection. And we got into that. Uh, which brings back to the point that you, the beams are are everywhere. And uh, if you're not a beam or a know yourself, you probably worked at Jim Beam for a while. And a lot of the friends I know over at Michter's worked at Jim Beam, whether it was Pam or, or Andrea or, um, or Dan over there. Uh, you had beams working at Maker's Mark. You had beams, of course, at Heaven Hill. Uh, I don't think there was a beam as far as I know at Wild Turkey. Six out of the, of the seven brands. major distilleries employed a beam as their distiller or master distiller over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we count out at least 68 different brands of bourbon that can relate themselves right back to a beam family distiller now growing mm-hmm. with Stephen mm-hmm. Bean. And please do not negate Craig because Craig's down there near the Tennessee border. Uh, Parker's son. He's at a mm-hmm. distillery right now of his own, I think is the way it works. Uh, I spoke to his stepmom, Linda, before she just passed away recently and was so proud for him to have gotten back into the industry and distilling. Uh, and I look forward to going and visiting their distillery. So there's more than one beam on a still right now today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and those no boys down the street from us. Well, you know, Booker's mother was a beam. So they're, mm-hmm. they're beam yeah. boys too. And uh, right. we're all, all proud of the entire family and the heritage and, and what they've done for the industry. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, if it wasn't for prohibition hitting and uh, for Joe L. Bean heading to Mexico and, uh, and disassembling the distillery and reassembling it down in Mexico, uh, for him not having the ability to make bourbon down in Mexico, uh, we would have never had America's Native Spirit under our brand, America's Native Spirit. I really feel like Joe Bean was starting to pop by sending bourbon back through the Bahamas on Kennedy boats to the United States. Uh, I think that served as a, a wake-up call to some of the staff up there in, uh, in D.C. to say, hey, we need to stamp this thing, America's Native Spirit. We're going to lose it to another country. Uh, if it wasn't for Joel Beam, I don't think that would have happened. Uh, if you're going to ask somebody about who's influenced the bourbon industry more than anybody, I think you got to stamp that with a beam. Can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. So uh, I wanted to ask then, you know, going forward, both with you know, with beams at so many places in 
historical terms, but also today's reality in Kentucky and elsewhere, mostly in Kentucky. But I'm, I'm, I've been curious to ask about what the interaction is in the, uh, in the extended family, having members at so many different distilleries, working on so many different brands, as you pointed out, uh, so many different products, mash bills, still types, you know, it, it, I'm not exactly even sure how to ask the question, but I think I got the answer for you, but, but yeah, I think you, you understand what I'm asking though. Yeah. yeah. There's never been a secret in the bourbon industry because the beams get together at Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's a true story. Everybody knows what everybody's doing and what's going on in the industry. Fair, fair. I got to write that down. I'm sorry. That's, that is a good one. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I mean, bourbon and whiskey, it's, it is one of the very few industries where uh, fam- family or not, people are always willing to help out and jump in and you know everyone points Heaven to the Hills Hill fire, fire. Yeah. yeah exactly in 1970 uh when what year it was i'm not sure but uh i've looked you can google it and you can see footage from i think it was whas television uh the, the rick house is on fire the, the distillery is being burnt down uh, max shapira is on the edge of losing everything that he owns and the folks down at jim beam give him some stock a stock of barrels to keep him afloat until he can get his stuff up and running again. Then he goes down and he buys Bernheim and, uh, you know, and starts distilling down there at that time, just before he did that United distilleries had it. And, uh, Craig beam was the master distiller there. Actually, Craig beam was the distiller there. Let me rephrase this. Craig beam was the distiller there and Chris Morris was in the offices, which would sign my coffee invoices. And Chris Morris's very first distillate was Yellowstone, Kentucky, straight bourbon whiskey. Really? Yes, really. How freaking cool is that? That it goes back in that interim time period that United Distillers had Yellowstone as a brand, that Chris Morris was the man that was up in charge of it, and Craig Bean was his distiller distilling it. Yeah, that's... Uh, one of those Kentucky things that just uh, is two degrees of separation that you just don't get. Uh, I got an opportunity to deliver coffee to them and I get an opportunity to meet two of the finest people in the bourbon industry all the way back when I was about 25 years old. That's insane. I mean, just diving deep into this industry and just into the state alone, you get, there's always a new connection to learn on there. And that's, Fascinating. I didn't know. Uh, Every time I, I get no together with that. any of these guys, it's always, I, I'm awestruck with them. They're almost, you know, like meeting a celebrity in, in many senses. Uh, you get tongue tied. You don't know what to ask them. You sit there and you look stupid. It's like <laughs> anytime I'm with Jimmy Russell, I'm stupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I walk up to him. I'm like, oh my God, it's Jimmy Russell. Oh my God. And, uh, you know, you want to ask those questions. You want to get more depth. They're not going to be around forever. The history of America's native spirit needs to be captured. It needs to be taken to, you know, eternity. There's got to be a way that we can get some of the information off of these folks that help build this America's native spirit now while we still can. 
and uh, and do something special with it to extend its life for decades to come. Because bourbon, it's not going anywhere. Bourbon mm-hmm. is around forever, and uh, and I'm a part of that unique circumstance, which is just an awesome job, just being part of something that will last eternally. That's pretty cool stuff. Absolutely, man. And I mean, the passion is just coming off, which is fantastic. That's what almost everyone I've talked to, if not everyone, just the passion just comes right off. And that's what I love about doing this and talking to people. Yeah, with a bean, you'll see passion. (laughs) I've never outworked him. The entire time that I've been at the distillery, I consider myself a workhorse, and I never outworked Stephen Bean. I could go 12 hours, he'd go 14. And it'd be like, <laughs> well, you do it. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing to hang out with somebody that is a savant and workhorse, <laughs> both in one person. It's pretty cool stuff. That's fair, man. So, went to the history of limestone branch as it is now, but uh, the Yellowstone branch, uh, the yellow, let's try that again. The Yellowstone brand, um, you know, the predates children. the current, right. Predates the current uh, limestone branch uh, incarnation. So uh, no, obviously back Yellowstone. To 1872, mm-hmm. a few years back. Right. I was going to say it's, you know, one of the oldest was, bourbon brands in the United States is history. Right. And, and I was curious about that because it's, I mean, it's obvious, but it's not exactly close to, uh, to Wyoming or Montana or Idaho. But, um, so if you were to say, Stephen Fonte, what has your, your work been the majority of your life? And that's salesperson. I'm a salesperson. And Charles Townsend was a salesperson. Charles Townsend was working for Taylor and Williams, and he was Coming through Wyoming in 1872, that'd be horseback. Took a minute to get back to Kentucky. When he got back, he had a buzz. He said, Bernard, you got to name a bourbon after this park out west. It's getting worldwide attention. Been carried in the gift shops at Yellowstone National Park ever since. Never to come off the shelf, even during prohibition, sold for medicinal purposes. Now, that's brilliant marketing by great uncle Bernard, as I stated. The boys are beams that started our distillery, but their mother was a Dant the whole time. So Bernard Dant was the one that created Yellowstone bourbon. News at 11, horseback. That's how you got it back in those days. And he decided to name the bourbon Yellowstone, and it was very successful. And it's been on the shelf at Yellowstone National Park ever since. That's just awesome. Yellowstone holds a special place in my heart, as do all the national parks. But it's just an awesome awe-inspiring place to go uh, in a very, it's just its own unique entity. They've and had some to, devastating stuff just happen. They have, I'm sure yes. that you've seen them on the news and they've lost an entire entrance coming into the park. That entrance is not rebuildable. They're going to have to create a whole new entrance for that side of the park. So we've started a campaign to raise money for Yellowstone National Park. We dropped $25,000 down on the front end of it and another $25,000, which we will match people's contributions. We're going to try to help rebuild this entrance. We're going to try to rebuild this park to bring it back to the glory that it is so that more people, as they have been in the past, can visit it and see just how awe-inspiring our first national park truly is. 
Absolutely. And that uh, campaign will be linked in the show notes to this episode. Uh, I did a post about it when, when uh, Stephen, when Stephen Beam posted about it or emailed, emailed the, you know, the mailing list and said, this is what's happening. Um, so yes, there will be definitely some more posting about it to make sure that we support this park as much as we can. Because you're right. It's, it's irreplaceable in so many ways. And uh, again, it holds a special place in my heart. And the yellow, so the Yellowstone brand, of course, has gone through multiple ownership changes since that time. And a funny coincidence that when I was uh, when I was down in Kentucky last month, the day before we went to Limestone Branch, we did a tasting with uh, Dixon Deadman over at Beaumont. Well, that guy. And he's he awesome. Is, he is. He is a uh, string bean of a guy. And you, it's, you know, uh, myself included, most people who are associated with the whiskey industry were not usually string beans. You know, <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> we like, like the whiskey. We like good food. And I think, I mean, he does too, clearly, but he, I don't, anyway, I digress. Uh, we were doing a tasting with him, pulls out five bottles over the course of the tasting. And it turns out the first one is a uh, a dusty Yellowstone. Um, I should have pulled up the picture of it, but it looks like it kind of looks like how the old Fitzgerald green label looks, um, kind of over your left shoulder with the the one that has the next to the, your decanter. But That's it's my candle, gre- <laughs> right? Yeah, so kind of like that. Uh, replaced the white with green. I think it was from the 60s or so. And uh, it was, I mean, it was an incredible whiskey. You could taste it was dusty right away. It had that old, that good old dusty varnish on there. Love uh, that stuff. It's, it's so good. Uh, but of course, it is a different product than is being put out today. Uh, I'm wondering, you just walk us through some of those, you know, ownership changes over the years and how Limestone and, and Steven ended up with the Yellowstone brand. So there was Cold Spring Distillery down in Gethsemane, Kentucky, which was Bernard Dance Distillery, and Cold Spring was the one that invented it. On that property today is a Dant Distillery. It's a Wally Dance Distillery, a $100 million distillery build went up right across the street from Cold Spring, right on top of the old Trump Distillery, which is Stephen Paul Beam's great-great-grandfather, Minor Case Beam great-grandfather, excuse me. I do that a lot. I go to too many greats. It's hard to keep them straight in the Bean family. So great-granddaddy, minor case Beams distillery was right there on the train track in Gethsemane, Kentucky, which made it very easy to bring in coal to operate the still. It was very easy for them to transport the whiskey out of that area. And uh, when Bernard decided to build a new distillery, he'd already seen what he was doing over there. So he built across the street from it and built Cold Spring Distillery. And then he sold that off to, uh, uh, I think, Glenmore took it over. Uh, then Diageo had it for a while. Uh, Diageo, actually, it was United Distilleries had it for a while. So it was like Glenmore, Taylor and Williams, which was the rectifier. Glenmore, mm-hmm. Taylor and Williams, and then United Distilleries. Then Diageo bought out the brand and they sold the brand off to Don Lux of Lux School Corporation in St. Louis, Missouri, who was a rectifier at that time. 
and Don had the brand and Steve Beam knew it. And when it came time that we needed some cash influx, which you always do need eventually with a distillery in order to get to the status that he wanted to take the place, he, uh, he approached Don and uh, told him about his history with Yellowstone and the family being on both sides of their family. Because the one thing that did happen that a lot of people do not realize is when the prohibition hit, Mount Case Beam had passed away 115 days after prohibition was abolished. He did not get to reopen the old Trump distillery. It sat there in ruin for a time period before Bernard Dant took it over and started running Yellowstone through the through their, their stills and his stills because the brand had become so popular and they was able to get reopened. And all of that leads into the fact that Yellowstone ran through both sides of Steve Beam's family, through the stillage of Steve Beam's family on both sides. Kind of cool stuff. So there's been about five uh, distilleries that have had the brand, and I would hasten to say that each one of those distilleries put their own stamp on the brand during the time that they owned it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you talk about the old Dusty you were just discussing, I asked Steve Beam, why can't we make this stuff anymore? And he said, Stephen, things are different. What do you mean by that? Well, you ever been down to Castle and Key and seen the old E.H. Taylor aquifer down there? you know, you don't run off of stuff like that anymore. It, uh, it kind of mossy. It's kind of, I don't know. You just, uh, you, you run off of clean water now and, uh, you run off of, uh, uh, stills that are different and much more sophisticated than they were in the old days. And you have to look at the environment from those days gone by the environment was cleaner. It was purer. And you're just not going to be able to produce the exact and identical flavor characteristics that you produced back in the days before all of the pollution and all of the stuff that's going on in the world. And that is an interesting perspective that I took from being at his right hand uh, that makes me understand that today's whiskey is not what yesterday's whiskey was. It's still damn good whiskey. Like the difference between a column still and a pot still that's clean daily, cleaning a column still yearly versus cleaning a pot still daily. You're going to get different flavor characteristics out of a pot versus a column. So thank God for us to have craft distilleries being able to be open and for us to repopulate the planet with as many craft distilleries as are being populated now so that it is pre-prohibition kind of liquor that we are getting it's just uh, extraordinary what the craft distilling industry is doing for bourbon. And even the big guys are following suit by putting in their own little craft lines. Mm-hmm. You find that most of the big distilleries that have columns, they're also running a pot somewhere nearby uh, to do a craft process. The Barkhart Co-op is a group of five shows with something for everyone. First up is My Whiskey Den, hosted by Mike Lisak. Pat Bologna, and Mitch Weddle. Listen and watch live on Mondays at 9 for thoughts and discussions on craft spirits and, once in a while, some downright odd things. And yes, I'm talking about the cantaloupe liqueur that I can't believe could be good, yet I gotta admit, it's fantastic. Next up is Bourbon Turntable, hosted by Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley. Kevin and Drew are true lovers of both music and bourbon, and I got to join them to talk about my own whiskey and music journey back in March. It's still one of my favorite episodes I've ever been a part of, and it's a show that I listen to every single week. 
The next two are from a guy you may have heard of. After all, he's a two-time guest on the Whiskey Ring podcast. Mr. Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lick and self-proclaimed reviver of the history of Indiana's Black Forest. Alan has two shows in the co-op, both of which are also weekly listens for me. The first one is Distiller's Talk with co-host Christy Atkinson. It's probably the nerdiest spirits podcast I know of, and that's including my own, and I absolutely love it. Some weeks you'll be talking capturing wild yeast and long-gone ghost distilleries in the Black Forest region. Others you'll be hearing from some of the most exciting up-and-comers in the distilling, brewing, and overall spirits-producing industry. Most of these distilleries he's gone, I've never even heard of before the episode. But after listening, all I want to do is find out more and explore new ways of looking at spirits and all the nerdy stuff that I love about this industry. And last but certainly not least is Alan's other podcast, If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Exploring the paranormal side of Hoosier-occupied Kentucky, Alan intertwines his own experiences with stories about neighbors, colleagues, and local legends, and why you should never go into the forest alone at night. Part scary story, part homage to the rich history of Southern Indiana, this show comes straight from Alan's heart and soul. Take a listen or watch to any of these amazing shows, and thank you to the Bar Car Co-op community for welcoming me. Join the community on Facebook, follow on Instagram and YouTube, and you'll have another show for every day of the week. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Port Eskeg, Glenallachie, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Hey, we'd look to look no farther than Freddie. I mean, they built him his own his own apparatus there just so he could play around and and do a craft what certainly for for Jim Beam would be considered a craft size and and style. Uh, which I, you know, that begs the question. Of course, in my mind, at least, you guys are Yellowstone and Limestone Branch is kind of on the on the edge of where some people might consider a craft distillery. You know, whether they're distilling, whether they're determining it on uh, you know size or output or barrel warehouses. Nine so, barrels a day. That's right, what so I was going to ask. You know, Nine barrels a day, and that's uh, yeah. that's if the week is going right. And everything is hitting on all twelve cylinders. We're getting uh, we're getting production on nine barrels a day. Sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's nine, uh, but that's uh, that's the goal. And what we're shooting for is nine barrels a day. So, in that way, and correct me if I'm wrong, it it sounds like I want to ask the question. You know, how do you define craft, or how does Limestone Branch define craft? But it sounds more like it's about the process rather than about the size if you will. And correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's just, that's what I'm hearing. I think it's uh, both size and process. You know, when you got uh, boys over there in the capital of Virginia, Danville, Kentucky, 
Mm-hmm. The wilderness trail. <laughs> Back in the old days, that was Virginia, son, and that was the capital. When you go to Danville and you look around, you see all these beautiful houses. You wonder, what the heck has Danville got such pretty houses for? And then you realize, well, the largest state, one of the largest states in the United States was Danville was when we were Virginia and we had beachfront property. Hmm. And then you got Patrick Heist over there with Wilderness Trail. He's doing some extraordinary things with that distillery. He's the leading yeast expert in the United States, possibly the damn world. And, uh, and he builds this distillery off of his uh, passion, which was Firm Solutions, uh, the yeast company. Uh, it's taking samples off of train tracks and places that you wouldn't even expect to be able to bring yeast into existence. And if you look at the old days, there was no master distillers. In the old days, there were yeast makers. And if you were able to make your own yeast, you were the master distiller. You were the, the man. And you had to be able to propagate your own yeast. Uh, and you had to be able to maintain your own yeast. And, uh, and that's what Patrick Heist has done over there. And he grew so fast. And it grew so large that he's no longer a craft distillery. He's producing too much juice to be a craft distillery. So they moved him to the Bourbon Trail. Hmm. And now he is one of the big houses on the Bourbon Trail. And it's well-deserved. Him and Shane have done an incredible job in the industry. And to bring it up to the level that they are doing nothing but sweet mash, which is fresh batches every time they come in. You got to be a doctor, for God's sakes, Jim, to be able to do sweet mash. It, it's yeah that as a Star Trek so, reference no i get the uh i'm more of a tng fan but had to go through the original series of course uh so so yeah pat pat was on um a little after burgundy i think he was in the 30s of the episodes and um we're now this might be episode 50 now that i think about it um so congratulations thank you thank you um and uh yes talking to to Dr. Pat about about yeast about the sweet mash process is uh, it's a hell of a trip it's <laughs> it's a hell of a trip to listen to because of course I listen to episodes of other podcasts and shows to hear things first uh, to you know make sure I could come up with those one or two extra questions and it, yeah he's got a mind for yeast that's that's unbelievable um, but you're right he's grown to a point where you can't really can't really consider crafts anymore. You might still have, to your point, you might still have the process of a craft distillery, but he's gone past the size where you can consider it a, uh, a craft. But nine barrels a day, uh, you know, maximum, on, as you say, on a good day, is certainly, I would think, within the realm of, of size. I mean, that's what a couple of these places are putting out within a couple of minutes. They sweep up off the floor is more than we make. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So with, you know, with limestone branch, you guys also have a very, a very set uh, range of products. And uh, in a lot of ways, I like that because it's very, it's very clear. You know, the Yellowstone bourbon has its role. The minor case rye, which I find delicious also has its role. Uh, and you know, time permitting, we'll definitely get to that as well. And then you've got uh, the uh, gin as well, and of course, single barrel program. And so, with let's you know, starting with the Yellowstone Bourbon itself, when 
when that transfer took place, that last transfer from uh, Luxco to Limestone Branch, what, if any, were the uh, the stamps that Stephen put on uh, what was now his brand of Yellowstone? He did. Uh, he did quite a few things. He he had a recipe from Guy Bean, his uh, grandfather, that uh, that he wanted to implement. He uh, used white heirloom corn, and he imported it from all the way across the street at our farmer in the knobs. And then he he used minor case beams yeast strain. Thank you, Patrick Heist, for scraping the inside of the donut jug and coming up with the DNA off the inside wall and matching it to a current yeast strain and firm solutions cryogenic laboratory and then uh, getting it to a hundred percent genetic match, which means it was minor case beams yeast from a hundred years ago. And that's what we're using for our yeast strain on all of our patches of Yellowstone is minor case beams, original yeast. And then uh, he's put several stamps on it of his own making. And uh, what I like to tell people that uh, Yellowstone, well, I didn't like that stuff. That's bottom shelf whiskey. I like to tell them, well, it ain't your daddy's whiskey. It's your great granddaddy's Yellowstone whiskey. It's going back to the originals. And uh, it's a totally different product than it was years ago. And, uh, and Stephen Beam's stamp on that has brought it back to the top shelf and no longer looking at your shoelaces to find it on the bottom. Yeah, I mean, I, granted, I haven't been drinking bourbon and whiskey for uh, for for too too long, but I would never have even thought it was a a bottom shelf or or anything close to it. Um, so it became that kind of during the United Distillers era into into the Luxco era. It had an yeah. era of, of where it yeah. was uh, not the most sophisticated juice in the world, and uh, and there was a lot of people out there that loved it. Because it was cheap, and uh, including one chef, John Aubrey. Chef Aubrey was the one that was the most uh, upset with the change of Yellowstone of anybody that I knew. And I still find the old Yellowstone bottles like that one. And I take it to his office anytime I find one, because if I find an old Dusty like that, I'm in better with the sheriff, I think. Never a bad, <laughs> never a bad thing to be. He didn't like to pay that extra money that to put on that new bottle of whiskey that Mister Beam had made, uh, and it was quite fun uh, with Sheriff Albright. He's an awesome character. I love him. He's a great guy. You know, people like what they like. You can't argue with that. No, I, he got a taste for Yellowstone where it was, and he liked it, and it was his brand. And people are very brand oriented. When it comes to a passion about a bourbon and a whiskey, it's a, about connecting with the brand. And once you're connected to it, then it's a, it's a long-term commitment. And, uh, and Chef Aubrey was long-term committed. And look, I, I got my own with uh, this going in the reverse direction, but man, the old crow stuff, you know, the 60s and early 70s old crow stuff. The traveler to chessman to whatever it is you give me juice if you can get it if you can get it it's getting harder and harder man but um and the the modern old crow i mean both both incarnations being related but the modern one just you know it in that way it went down to the shelves that one went down whereas yellowstone has gone up um nothing wrong with the new old crow 
but I mean, it's not the same old crow that you're finding in the, uh, in the 60s, 70s. And that when I met Freddie, that was the topic of conversation was all about old crow comparing their old stuff with today's stuff. Um, I, was th- I love those kinds of conversations. As you said, the, everything is different now. The environment's different. The wood is different. The trees are different. The grains are different. Um, there's so many things to consider. But I had a, uh, a request from Andrew Webrink at one point to come on board a tasting panel uh, at Independent Stave and uh, the largest barrel manufacturer in the United States, the barrel manufacturer we use. And uh, I had some time tasting all sorts of different uh, whiskeys uh, from spiral cut barrels to uh, five char barrels, not Gator four, taking it to a five char barrel. He's doing extraordinary things in finishing staves and all sorts of different interesting and unique things for the future of bourbon. When I told you earlier that uh, bourbon has a bright future and for eternity, for decades and decades to come. It's things like that that I've seen personally that tells me that things are only going to get better. Things are going to get greater and bourbon's going to be around for a very, very long time. Your mouth to every God's ears for sure. And so let's, you know, let's dive a little deeper into the, uh, into the brands and the, and not only the brands into the products themselves for today. So the Yellowstone bourbon, which of course I have, a bottle of the regular Yellowstone out on my shelf and I forgot to bring it in. Happens very often on this podcast. I'll be thinking of which bottle to bring in to show and talk about. Um, but so you have the core Yellowstone. Yellowstone brand. Select is our national brand. It's in all 50 states and 13 countries. If I have a bottle of Yellowstone that you buy, percentage goes back to the National Park Conservancy. So if you want to save our parks, you're going to drink more Yellowstone. Yep. And especially this year, even before uh, the disastrous flooding in Yellowstone National Park recently, uh, you guys are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the park sure on will. all your bottles. That's the 150th anniversary decanter right there. Beautiful. It is pretty I gorgeous. Picked, I should have picked one of those up when I was down there. I really, I thought about it and ran out of space, but that is, that's a beautiful thing right there. Yeah, And that's got a single barrel in it right now and it's a single bear that's extraordinary but uh yeah the yellowstone select is a uh a four and seven year mingle four year distillates from our distillery the seven year distillate is rectified most of the folks that are in the industry do not know what a rectifier is however rectifiers are people that do not have stills but they have brands taylor and williams was rectifier back in its day uh, Lux Gold Corporation was a wrecked fire until they built Lux Road Distillery and became a producing agent. And uh, that seven-year juice is from stock that they had in their barrel houses, which were uh, someplace heavenly. I'm not going to tell you because I'm on a non-disclosure agreement. Might have been on a hill. Could have been made by Cousin Parker. And if that's the case, then you've got a seven-year distillate with a totally different mash bill than what Mr. Bean created. You put those two mash bills together, ones with yellow corn, ones with white corn. The yellow corn is cornier, <laughs> giving it a depth of complexion that most bourbons would aspire to have. And so, therefore, Yellowstone Select is my daily driver. I spend two hours and 40 minutes a day on the road to do this damn job. 
When I get home to the Highlands, I do two fingers daily of Yellowstone Select. You've earned it just driving. At least in at least an hour twenty each way, you get somewhere. That's a true story. I'm up here in New York. It'll take an hour and twenty to get ten miles, and it's that's fifty-six miles. Uh, I make it all every day. God bless you. Uh, You also got a pretty view, though. Like driving. I go through Taylorsville. Makes Bean crazy. He's like, "Why the hell do you go through that windy old road?" I said, "Because (laughs) it's uh, faster." Well, how's it faster? Well, you're not on your phone. You're paying attention to the curves. You can't be on a phone driving mm-hmm. those back roads like that. And I said, and it shaves 20 minutes off of my drive, typically, going from Louisville through the back roads up into uh, it. is more scenic, and uh, it's beautiful mm-hmm. countryside. If you ever get a chance to take that road, be aware that you got to be on it, but mm-hmm. enjoy the countryside because it's one of the most gorgeous drives. There's a couple spots on that road going to Springfield. And then there's a couple spots from Springfield to uh, Lebanon. And it's just, a, it's gorgeous. I, I just love, even along, even along the interstate, you know, the big, the major routes and all that, you're still going past these beautiful landscapes, horse farms galore, of course, uh, you know, barn houses going up alongside and it's it's a completely different view from what most people get to experience bloomfield so bloomfield is where i was really uh, you're coming into bloomfield and you see the uh ham brown cabin which is one of the oldest cabins in the state of kentucky that's been totally restored and uh that farm is owned by ian gearing i believe ian gearing of the different television episodes uh, that you see all over the world. And uh, he has restored this cabin on that property. That's just one spot that you will go through. And that is extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's just beautiful. I really love it. Uh, I, I'll be back down there in August. So, and this time drive myself. So I, I look forward to it. So you got the Yellowstone select. So that's 93 proof. It's uh, Mr. Beams mash bill. He did the 75% white corn, 13% rye, the rest in malted barley. That percentage of his juice is in that bottle, and it's our national parks give back. It's uh, all over the United States and, and in uh, several countries. And then you've got uh, minor case sherry cast finished rye, which is named after minor case bean. And the bottle is designed as the old back bottles were of yesteryear when you bought your whiskey by the barrel. And you would paint your bottle in porcelain paint. You would figure that that bottle was going to be crushed at some point. It's a uh, very trashier to make a bottle because it's all hand blown glass. And mm-hmm. so you just did the minimal on the bottle of porcelain paint. And then your product from your barrel was supposed to be put into your back bottle. Michael Feach and I just did a dinner together. And, uh, and he told me he didn't think that it was the tax stamp across the top of it being invented by Garvin Brown that that went back a little further back to old crow, I believe mm. is what he was telling me, but uh, everything that I've researched and the fact that uh, Garvin Brown is known as the first person to put whiskey in a bottle uh, tells me that I'm pretty close to the facts. Uh, I try, I am a national brand ambassador, not a historian. Uh, so <laughs> I try, but uh, I've always, uh, attributed that to Garvin Brown being the first safety cell bottle in American history. It sounds like uh, 
Michael Veach has taken it back to the old Kroll days, I believe is the way he, he takes it back. And he's a historian, so I'm giving kudos to him. Anytime we're together, he always smacks me in the head and says, no, boy, that never happened. And I try to realign myself for the next interview to be more accurate in ways that, uh, that you can only be when you're hanging out with historians of the bourbon industry. Sure. I'd, I would love to talk to Mike Veach, man. That's uh, I, because I, I trust me, I enjoy drinking it too, but I do love the history of it and how, I mean, the history of bourbon itself in American whiskey is, is rich enough for a lifetime, but then you bring in how it affected so many other parts of American life from, you know, bottle and bond being the first consumer Bernie. protection acts. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bernie. And then, uh, and how prohibition did and did not affect things. Like I was just in Maryland where they didn't enforce prohibition. Didn't know that till I went down there, um, that you could still get busted f- by a federal agent down there, but the States didn't give a damn what you were doing in, in Maryland. You could be distilling, wow. drinking, whatever. Didn't matter. Um, and they were proud of it. And you don't, you know, so those are some things you just don't, you don't know unless you happen to go to a distillery that. I'm not going didn't. into politics, but we've got some things going on in our country right now at this moment. It seemed just like that. And that's all I'm going to say. It's going to be interesting what all the states do. And we're oh, yeah. going to see something like prohibition on what's going on right now in our own country. Wild that that's happening to me. Figured that prohibition would have been the last of that kind of stuff going on. But mm-hmm. that's all there is to that. Well, the the curse of the historian. Look, I, I almost finished a master's in medieval history. I was a historian for a long time or historian in training, I'll say. And the, the most common axiom you come across is that historians are some of the saddest people out there because they see history. And they see and it they, repeated. And they see it repeated. And they I know it's see coming. where you're going. Exactly. And it's damn true. Uh, medieval or, or not. Uh, so with the Yellowstone Select, you got the Yellowstone Select. That's core of the brand line um the minor before i forget minor case rye uh number one i gotta ask and i i don't know why i haven't asked this before but um minor case that was or that was a real name wasn't a nickname nope minor case bean was his great grandfather and uh it was a family name i've been to minor case's grave site i've seen his gravestone and uh you know, that's one of the unique things that uh, I'd like to see in the future is uh, something that Stephen Beam has a passion for is a historic bourbon trail where there are markers by the state at all the old distillery sites that you could go into and maybe have a cash tag up there that you could scan. And it would give you a history of what that site's all about. And I think that would be the next level of creating history in the bourbon industry. And uh, I would love to see him. Uh, move forward on that, which is his idea uh, in the future. But uh, yeah, that uh, minor case rye whiskey is a sherry cast finished rye finished in the cream sherry cast of Myers Winery, Cincinnati, Ohio. It's the oldest operating winery in Ohio, and it was John F. Kennedy's favorite cream sherry. John F. Kennedy served that cream sherry after every state dinner at the White House, 
And uh, this has been finished in those cream sherry casks, giving it a fruit nose with a fruit finish, giving it a fantastic base for a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. The one thing that you screw up on a Manhattan more than anything is sweet vermouth that's been hanging around the well way too long. Sweet vermouth is a wine. It's not supposed to last forever. You're supposed to replace that stuff. And a lot of places that you go into that have bourbon, you ask them for a Manhattan. They put in some dredge of sweet vermouth in minor case rye whiskey. You don't really need sweet vermouth. You need a Luxardo cherry and a couple bitters in it, and you call it a very dry martini Manhattan, yeah. which is what I think a Manhattan is. Is a martini yeah. with bourbon. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, bit, a bourbon martini for sure. Exactly. For sure. Uh, and I remember tasting the uh, minor case the first time. It was maybe a Brooklyn Wine and Spirits Fest or something on the west side where they have all the, the uh, where they have space, let's say, to do festivals like that. Um, and it really took me aback because it was very different. It was the beginning of my rye journey. Like rye came after bourbon and after scotch for me as a, a spirit to dive Talk into. Talk to me about a couple of mash bills real quick. What do you have to be to be bourbon? What's your mash bill? 51% corn or more. What do you got to be to be rye? 51% rye or more. What do you got to be to be gin? 51% juniper. Mm-hmm. So it all falls in suit, right? Yeah. You know what Beam likes to do? Mess with your head, son. He likes you to come into our distillery and say, I don't like rye whiskey. And then put a minor case rye in your hand. Do you know what the mash bill is on minor case rye? 51% rye, mm. then corn, and then barley. So if that was six points higher in corn, it would be a bourbon distillate. He's messing with your head. He's right. taking somebody that's not a rye drinker and giving them an introductory rye and then finish it in a cream sherry cask, which is awesome mm. to just enhance the flavor just a tiny bit not to overpower the rye just to no. give it a unique and different flavor characteristic you would have never thought rye could possibly have and, and that's what he's done with his rye he's done that with bowling and birch too bowling and birch is 51 percent juniper it does not taste like a pine forest because it doesn't have a pine forest in it mm. you take that up to 75 percent Juniper, 80% juniper, like most gins are, and you get that pine forest taste. He wants to take people that are not gin drinkers and introduce them to something that they just cannot put down because it's so damn good. He's got 19 different botanicals in this Bowling and Birch gin. Now, what would you do if you were a landscape architect with a master's degree? Plant things that make gin all over Mm -hmm. the property. And so this is a passion project. He named it after his two grandmothers, Kathleen Dant Bowling, one grandmother, and the Birch sisters being the other grandmother. Well, there's two Birch sisters. So who did they marry? Well, one of the Birch sisters married Guy Beam, his grandfather. The other Birch sister married Mike Dant, the president of Taylor and Williams. Same porch, same preacher. Saves on your bourbon cost using one preacher. <laughs> Man, you've you have earned your stripes and more in just keeping these names on track and in the right position it's it's damn impressive it's difficult you've been i mean you've been and i don't have it all i'm not even close to it all that's the funny thing about it that intrigues me it's just like being in the coffee business being a golden cup certified coffee trainer 
every time I'd go in with somebody that had more knowledge than me, I felt like, wow, I don't know anything in this business. And I've been here 26 years and I still don't know anything in this business. And that inspired me to want to know more. And then I got into the tea. Well, hell, tea has got more things out there than coffee ever had. It's centuries older than coffee. And you start, it's like a rabbit hole. You start going down the rabbit hole and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know nothing about tea. I got so much more to learn. And then uh, in the bourbon industry, every time you're with one of the master distillers, you'll realize, you know, this much, and you will always know this much, no matter how much you feel like, you know, there's always somebody in this industry that knows way more than you. And Mm -hmm. thus the reason Stephen Beam called himself a practical distiller for so many years. Practical distillers were yeast makers. He never wanted to call himself a master distiller until he got to the point where he knew everything possible about this industry, where he could answer every question ever asked him accurately. And, uh, and, and he has accepted the role as master distiller at this point, but he still, I think, prefers the role of practical distiller, which was yeast maker of the old days. I mean, it's the same relationship that, you know, you have to, to Steven, to, to Mike Veach, to those guys that, you know, people like, like me have to you and to Bernie and, and Pat and where we're, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a novice compared when you start comparing things. Like I, I consider myself to know a lot about the industry, a lot about whiskey, a lot about you know production and all of that, but um you start comparing and it's I'm I'm still that novitiate level in in the parish, but makes conversations more fun. Cause like I said, I I mean I'm I'm writing notes here. Like it's this is an audio only podcast, but you'll see like I'm writing a full page of notes here of things that I had never heard of before. I didn't know connections that I don't know everything from you know from the I mean well, the beam and the dent connection I didn't know, but you know uh how many brands have been traced to a beam the relation with chris morris having done yellowstone and um how you know that there's so much to know and to learn about this my and, next rabbit hole was know, uh, a little town in uh in kentucky that's behind loretta that uh has jacob's well in it and that mm-hmm. is uh, jacob beams well on his property and uh, where the beams had originated. I, w- I want to get with Fred No. I want to get him in my car and take mm-hmm. him over there to Manton, Kentucky. And I want to see where the farm was. I want to see where Basil Hayden brought that 26 families to that farm, to that mm-hmm. area. And I want to understand it with the next level, just like I did with Stephen Beam. I said, I can't put this together in my own head. I need to see these properties that you're talking about. I need to see the distillery that Bernard Dant created. I need to see that property. I need to see Minor Case Beam's property. I need to see the relationship between the areas. He took me to the church, the chapel that has the most beautiful stained glass in it in Chicago, Kentucky. And they changed the name of it from Chicago, Kentucky, because all the mail ended up in Chicago, (laughs) which makes sense. But at that time, it was Chicago, Kentucky. And in that chapel, the stained glass donated by none other than J.W. Dant himself. 
You walk out on the property and there's this gravesite, J.W. Dance gravesite. And it is with a group of people that are well-known in the bourbon industry. It's like Kville Cemetery is to me right around the corner from my house. I can literally throw a rock and hit Kville Cemetery from my house. And that's where Pappy Van Winkle is buried. And that's where Garvin Brown is buried. And that's where JTS Brown is buried. And there's a lot of beams over there that are buried there. And so therefore, I'm going to be buried there in a columbarium. My ashes are going to be put in that whiskey decanter that Beam gave me for my birthday. It's a paddle wheeler for the Ohio River whiskey decanter. And when they seal me, they're going to seal me in a tax stamp of my date of birth and my date of death. And they're going to place me in this columbarium on the top shelf so that I will be top shelf whiskey for the rest of eternity on the bourbon trail at Cave Hill Cemetery. Oh, how do you? I don't even know where to go from there, man. That, that how do you how do you top that lineup that you know that crescendo to that point, man? Well, that, Kentucky Harlan's Colonel Harlan Sanders is back there, the fried chicken king. You got Muhammad Ali back there, the boxing king, floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee. Some of the most beautiful monuments ever seen. You will see them in Cavill Cemetery. If you come to Kentucky to do bourbon. You should take a drive through Cave Hill Cemetery and see these gorgeous monuments dedicated to the people that have built our city. Well, you know what? I'm like I said, I'm coming down at the end of August, and uh, it'll hook up with you a little closer to the date. See if uh, I might get a private tour going over there. That'd if be all if right. Stephen if Stephen will let you uh, let I'll you off the property that for a stuff day. in my GPS. Ever one of those grave sites is in my GPS. I don't want to have to go on their app to find them. <laughs> I can just drive right in and put closest connection. It'll take me right to every one of those grave sites. Awesome. It's a I big would, place. In fact, the wall that's around Cave Hill Cemetery was the second largest wall ever created next to the wall of China. Most people don't know yeah. that. It's a beautiful brick wall. Fonte's Coffee, my brother's coffee shop is on one side of the cemetery. My properties that I own are on the other side of the cemetery. We're both on the outside of the cemetery. It's a good place to be. Definitely. Don't want to be on the inside. No, not yet. Stay on the outside. Stay on the outside. And when you go on the inside, you've got you've got your path set. And that is that damn impressive, man. So I know we are getting uh just past the top of the hour. Don't want to keep you a whole day, although I am quite enjoying this conversation. It could definitely go uh as long as long as you want. Uh but I want to make sure that we get to this bottle that I picked up at the gift shop, which I showed you earlier, which was the family recipe. And so this one is number one, just a beautiful, I'd call it maroon label. What about you? Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's got a red color characteristic yeah. to it. And uh, yeah. it's a six year old. And uh, that is made with Guy Beam's recipe and minor case Beam's yeast strain. It's the 150th anniversary. It doesn't have a, a lot of juice to it. It was going to be a bottled in bond. It's 100 in proof. Bernie was so excited. Couldn't keep him off the ceiling. He was so excited. <laughs> but it's not because it's more than one season in order for us to be able to put it up around the United States. So that's off the pot stills in our distillery. And it's a... Uh, it's a wonderful juice. It's a, uh, what Steve said, polarizing 
And I do believe it is that. It's polarizing. When you taste it, it's unique and different to anything that you've ever tasted in your life in bourbon. And mm-hmm. that's what Steve Beam is all about. Something unique and something different. It has a mashiness on the front end of it that leads into a smokiness, a little light smoke on the back end of it. Uh, wonderful characteristics that you would expect from a six-year-old bourbon and at 100 proof, it just gets super easy and wonderful. You just got to ease your way into it, the nose on it, the taste of it develops over about the third and fourth sip. It's just, uh, it becomes a passionate personal favorite. Once you get past the first couple sips of it, it's uh, all good on the first couple sips. It's just different on the first couple sips. And then it's like, wow, holy cow, is this good bourbon? It, it really is. And the, you know, the first time I tasted it, when I got back from Kentucky, cracked it open. And uh, I mean, even the, the smell is the nose is totally different from, of course, I was white, comparing it white to corn. Right. I mean, granted, I was comparing it initially to Yellowstone Select. And then I pulled out a couple of the uh, 115 proof Yellowstone single barrels that I've got to see, you know, what was this product going to be like? And then because I was also just just from the eye, and um, when I post the the review of it, you know, people will be able to see. But this doesn't look like a six year old whiskey. This looks considerably older and or uh, potentially like a sherry finish almost. It's got that cherry wood mahogany hue to it. Um, that it's six years old and hundred proof. I dare say you shouldn't have. You know what I, I mean? I've got a. Uh a story for you that Jimmy Beam, Steve's daddy, told me. He says, son, there's no reason to take bourbon past six years. Six years is the sweet spot of all bourbon discipline. My daddy told me that. That's where I feel it's best at. And uh, and I spoke to several Beams outside of that conversation, and several of them have always said six years is a sweet spot. Bourbon doesn't always get better with age. Sometimes it gets worse with age. And when you get to a point where you're running a barrel house like I do, and you find that something went south that was really good at six, but it went south at like eight, it might come back around. It's potentially the ability to come back around. And uh, you want to pick your whiskeys when they're the best and the most flavorful. Six years seems to be a sweet spot for a lot of bean boys and I'm all about saying six years is a sweet spot because uh, they know a hell of a lot more about it than I do. I'm with you. I'm with them. I'm uh, I'll extend it a little bit with you. I'm going to go like broader range, four to 10 depends on the producer, but that kind of range where I mean, I know I just don't like woody bourbons or woody right. whiskeys. Right. I, I don't like something that tastes the like point of no return. Yeah. Point yeah, where it, it tastes, starts tasting like toothpicks. Exactly. You're chewing on an oak stave and just you, you, that you can't come back around from. Nope. Can't come back from. And yeah, this, no, this was, I've done a lot of, a lot of whiskey tasting at this point. Um, I just passed 1500 written reviews and, and tasting notes and I love doing it, but at the same time, after that many, I mean, I'm sure you've had the same kind of experience. After you taste that many things, 
it's harder and harder to find things that are new and unique. Yes. And this, uh, as soon as I tasted it, I messaged my friend, uh, Eric, who's a big cigar guy. And I was like, you better turn around from Indiana, go back down there and grab a bottle of this. Because to me, and I don't, I don't even smoke cigars, honestly, it's just not my thing. But for me, this is a cigar smokers bourbon par excellence. Well, tell Eric that when he's at the distillery, he better pick up one of the Rocky Patel Yellowstone barrel aged cigars in our gift shop. The only place you can get them is at our gift shop right now. It's a Rocky Patel's aging them in the Nicaraguan compound in our bourbon barrels. And they are extraordinarily smooth barrel aged cigars. He's taking his tobacco. He's taking his professional rollers and he's using it about nine months in some of our single barrel casts. And uh, while they were wet, he put that uh, tobacco in there and let it age out for an additional nine months and then rolled his cigars. And so we've got some Yellowstone labeled cigars at the distillery right now. Yeah, this is to me, it was, you know, fresh and, and maybe lightly dried tobacco uh, just being rolled like for perfect for, pairing, perfect pairing, nice, dark fruitiness to it uh, for, for a couple of years. I lived. Well, for one year, I should say, I lived up in uh, up in the Bronx here in New York City, and there's a place on Arthur Avenue, which is like the little little Italy of the Bronx, and there's a marketplace on that strip, and they've got you know shops and food hall stuff and uh, you know old world style, but you walk in and the first thing that hits you, the first place that's right there, are these guys rolling cigars and they look like they haven't moved from there in 40 years all they've been doing is just give me a new leaf new filler and just roll the new cigar and that scent has stayed with me ever since and that's exactly what i got off of this it was it was just cigar bourbon perfectly paired uh and the other thing I wanted to mention on that is it was funny that you said that it was supposed to be a bottle and bond and Bernie was really excited for it. When I, uh, I talked to Bernie, one of the questions I came up with was, you know, it's been 125 years since the bottle and bond act. Things have changed quite a bit since then. You're not worried about tobacco spit in your whiskey anymore or hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. Uh, every warehouse is bonded. Now you don't have people, you know, the tax agents living on the property anymore. Uh, so you know things are things are different. It's still a marker of quality, to be sure. But I said to him, if you were writing the Bottled and Bond Act today or rewriting it, is there anything you would change? And the one thing it took a couple of seconds to think about it, it's like you know. Never really thought about that. It's so standardized. The one thing he said was the seasons. He said the the farming seasons, they still exist to a point, but uh, you know, today's techniques and methods and technology, it's not the same as it was to have the spring from the January to June and then fall from July 
to December. It's not the same anymore. So it was funny when you said that that was the one thing it seems that kept this from being a bottled and bond product. So that's pretty cool of Bernie. I like him I, even more now. I liked yeah. him before, but I like him better. He's so good, man. He's so much fun. Uh, so with, again, with, with this family recipe, you know, it was sorry. The thing I keep coming back to is just the color. And that's not usually a big thing with me. Like I like noting the color, but unless it's some really unique hue or something, which this is, it doesn't really phase me, but I look at this and I say, this is six years old, hundred proof. How, is there any indication of like, how do you get that kind of color from it? Oh, damn. I don't know if so, you can see the color differential on the television or on a <laughs> laptop, rather. Like so Stephen's holding a Yellowstone Select, right? Okay. And that Yellowstone Select has a lighter color, a significantly lighter color uh, mm. when you put it together. And then you've got a Yellowstone single barrel mm. that uh, is about five years old. I don't know exactly how old that particular one was, but it's got a more su- significant color than the Yellowstone Select. Of course, there's a mingle going on with Yellowstone Select. You got a four and seven year distillate mingle together. You're doing a big vats of it. Uh, it comes off with a lighter color, just does. Uh, how this five year old gets a much deeper color than that is uh, great barrels. With a, I believe everything is three char at our distillery. Uh, so we're not doing a four, but right. that's what you get out of 53 gallon barrels after that many years at a three char at certain levels in the barrel house. You got to remember that some of these barrels, you know, are at different levels. And when you're at a different level, you're going to get a different color because you're going to have more heated to top of the rick house than you are at the bottom of the rick house. At the bottom of the rick house, things age a lot. You got to go longer. You use cooler temperatures and, uh, and you talk to somebody over at Buffalo Trace when you take Freddie's tour and you see the warehouses that are there in brick and that they have their own microclimates. When you visit Woodford Reserve and you see their stone barrel house and they tell you that it takes five days for the temperatures to change and you've got older juices coming out of those barrel houses. Uh, those older juices aged out many, many more years where your Pappy Van Winkle comes from is a certain Rick house on Buffalo Trace's property. Mm-hmm. And it's chosen by the Van Winkle family to be Pappy out of those Ricks. Uh, and they're trying to emulate those Ricks up on the hill where they've built new Rick houses that have heat in them so that they can actually modify the temperature that's in that rick house uh the technologies that are going into it the probes that are down into the actual barrels telling them exactly where the heat came in and when it came out and what uh, temperature it was every day in computer algorithms industry is getting very very complex it's getting very very in-depth they're trying to figure out exactly what makes better whiskey and those are other things that are in my head that i understand the future of bourbon is going to be around for a very long time. There's always more to learn about it. And there's always more for whether you're someone like me, who's novice on it, someone like, like you, who's 
getting pretty close to that top level. Nah, and of course, I haven't Steve, even scratched the surface, son. Stephen right? Beam is far higher than I ever thought about being, and I haven't even scratched his surface. I couldn't hey, look, go I, distill if you put a gun to my head. They don't want me on any still in the place. I'd blow the place up. So, no, look, I'm I, nowhere close to being at the top level of anything. I am just a guy that loves whiskey and has the passion to be in the industry and is fortunate enough to be here. That's all I am. And and that's because they haven't let you distill. Otherwise, you'd be blown up right now. And you're going to be having a, be be having a very different conversation. Yeah. Be visiting Capeville. Have another There's a new mash in Lebanon, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, so, uh, you know, honestly, I, I think that's I think it's the best place to to end it off. So, Stephen, thank you so much place. for taking the time. Absolutely. And Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. And talking through the history. I mean, there's so much that came out of this episode that I, I learned. I didn't know before. Um, Come to town. Let's take a drive through Cave Hill Cemetery. I'll show you some places. I'll be there. I'll let awesome you know. And, follow up. and uh, in the meantime, make sure to follow, uh, to follow Yellowstone, to follow Limestone Branch. And Bourbon Scout uh, 1872, my social media. It's uh, there you go. the very first park inception was 1872. The very first park ranger in that park was a scout. So Bourbon Scout 1872, it's Facebook and Instagram. I don't tweet. Fair enough. I just started tweeting a while ago, so bless I'm, you. I'm with you. I'm, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm with you. Instagram and Facebook most of the way. Um, also, please do, whether you're listening to this now, when it comes out, uh, in the future, whenever, please do consider strongly supporting uh, the campaign to help Yellowstone National Park to help them rebuild from the recent disasters, to help them stay a national treasure for many years to come. Uh, it's a big part of all of our lives and may it stay that way forever. And maybe be drinking bourbon on the property when that entrance is rebuilt. Love it. All right. Steven, hang out with me for one sec after we finish the recording. This has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>